Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by my colleague Stuart Mandel. Stu, we got some... uh, Got some ugly news that have surfaced in the police blotter that, uh, as we taped this on Tuesday, that came up yesterday. Stu, it's rare that we talk about Big 12 doormat Kansas football, but Les Miles has brought some attention there. And his most talented player, Puka Williams, who's been in trouble, has furthered that spotlight. What do we make of this? Puka Williams was the freshman standout running back for the Jayhawks last season. Pretty much the... I mean, he's got to be the first guy to come through there in many years who was worth tuning in for. Like, oh my gosh, Kansas has this really great player. Well, he was arrested earlier this offseason. Um, it made its way through the courts, and I think he was put into a diversion program. But the facts of the case are pretty clear. A woman accused him of punching her in the stomach and grabbing her throat, and it turned out that he admitted to it over a text message and police officers found bruises on the woman so while there's no video that obviously when there's a video it takes these cases to suddenly everybody becomes aware of them but the facts are pretty clear so les miles has delivered his verdict he will miss the first game against an fcs team and you know there's always at least one of these a year where people where there's outrage that you're not going to punish the guy more than that and there's really nothing that can be done about it. There's no, the NCAA doesn't doesn't have any sort of oversight of how it's up to the schools themselves how they punish these kids. But um, I'm not, I can't say I'm surprised because it's kind of how Les Miles handled violent acts by his players at LSU. Yeah, I, I thought one of the voices in this that that is one of the leading voices when it comes to this issue and that sexual violence is Brenda Tracy, and she had commented, Coaches, when dealing with your players and issues of sexual assault and domestic violence, a one-game suspension is never appropriate. I don't care what else is going on. One-game suspension only sends one message. The victim doesn't matter, and what your player did isn't a big deal. I I agree with that. The one-game suspension, now, I don't know what what would be fitting or appropriate. There are some people going to go, well, he was... He sat out and complied with all uh, all the issues KU had set out when it went through the system and seven months. You know, look, the off season is the off season. At some point, you wonder about where is the accountability on this. You know, I feel like if you're a KU fan, you're probably going, well, he's going to, you know, he's taking away football for the off season and he's going to miss a game. And the, you know, I just uh, I think unless it's unless it's a player associated with your team, it's rare that people are like going to say, no, that's not going to say that's yeah, that's fitting in this day and age. Now, if he sat out four games, would would you think that would be a more a more apt punishment? Three games? Yeah, I mean, that's the that's where it's kind of a no win situation, because either in these situations, either the guy gets kicked off the team or it's a very light punishment like this because there's no guideline, right? That says, well, based on these particular circumstances, you should suspend them for six games or four games or whatever it may be. But I do agree with Brenda that one game, because, you know, what? If, when we get to the start of this season, there will be a bunch of guys who sit out the first game of the season for far more minor transgressions than that. Uh, that, that one game suspension is kind of the token thing you hand out for guy, you know, didn't show up for a meeting or, you know, some things like that. It kind of trivializes a very violent act. But again, 
I was very critical of the hiring of Les Miles. It wasn't for this reason, but another knock against him. We talked about this a few years ago with Steve Spurrier. When somebody is charismatic and full of jokes and can kind of charm the media, I feel like they don't get as much criticism over some things as maybe others would. You know, at LSU, he had Jeremy Hill, who was arrested for a violent crime, who I don't believe ever missed a game. Jordan Jefferson got reinstated very quickly. Uh, that was that was kind of his M.O. there. He just didn't care. He just wants to win. So I wasn't expecting him to kick him off the team by any means, but I do think one game sends the wrong message. Well, I, one thing I, I thought of is somebody else, I, uh, a colleague of mine had, had discussed that and talked about, well, this is what Les did at LSU. And the one thing you know I, I brought up, right or wrong, is it's not it's 2019 now. It's not 2010, and I don't know if, you know, our expectations are the the punishments should be stricter. We should be sending more of a message. And we obviously, in this case, is the college football coaches. It goes back to this thing. We talked about this a couple months ago with, I think it was related to Dan Mullen and the issue of zero tolerance against this issue. I don't know if they know what zero tolerance really is, you know, if that's if that's what it is. And I think, you know, one one area which. I don't want to call it a gray area. I don't know how, you know, I think there is a lot of people who fall into this category who think, well, if somebody grabs somebody or punches them in the arm, it's different than punching a woman in the face. And it's like there's levels to this, I think, is how it's seen. What do you think of that? I think it's impossible to have a catch-all punishment for any sort of act of violence because every I mean literally any two situations like this right are going to have a different set of facts so now the NFL has tried to do it to some degree right and even there there's a lot of inconsistency they have been handing down stiffer punishments but it can vary wildly from one to the next so you know it's just uh I don't know I don't know there's ever going to be uh, uh, you know, a way to do this that everybody would say, yep, that's the right way to do it. That was the right, you know, that was the just uh, punishment. Uh, I just know that uh, one game, one game, I mean, even if he had said two games, I still think there'd be criticism. But one game is, you know, the bare minimum. It's And it's against an FC. It's probably the one game that Kansas is assured of winning without Kuka Williams, right? They need him for all the other games. Yeah, you would you would think. And and look, the more these stories get talked about, I do think it is a positive in that regard. And I do think that the expectations are higher now. And I do think it's good that that a lot of programs and things like the opening are are bringing in Brenda Tracy and other speakers to raise awareness of domestic violence and sexual violence. I think to have that discussion, I think, is is ultimately a positive thing. And I'm curious you know, we're on the basically on the eve of conference media days and Les Miles is going to be back at a podium, whereas you referenced before, he can be really charming and he's a very unique speaker and he's really charismatic. And I think that he is going to get asked about it, I'm sure, because it's Puka Williams. It's, it's the most dynamic player Kansas has had in a long time. And this happened the week before this. I'm sure it's going to come up and we really haven't heard Les talk about it. And we'll see how he explains it. And I'm guessing it's probably not going to be enough for a lot of people. And for some people, they'll just move on after it. I'm sure he'll be asked about it. And I'm sure there'll be some stories about it. But I bet you there'll be far more 
Les is back in college football and charged up stories, right? Because it's Converse Media Days. It's a it's a happy time. Everybody's undefeated. Yeah, and I well, I do think there's a, a layers of this where it's just like, hey, you know what? The season's right around the corner. I'm not sure how much. If you're going to write a lot about Les Miles, I don't know. You probably already would have written about Les Miles. I don't think you'd be necessarily doing the Les's backstory from Texas and Big 12 Media Days. Well, well, we take it for granted, I think, at our roles as national writers that, you know, we have the freedom to, if we wanted to do that story, we can just up and fly to Kansas at any time. A lot of the people that will be at Media Days are people who cover other teams in the conference. This is their first chance to see him. So, no, so I right. think that story right. will be written a lot. You're right, but I do think that that, I suspect... This story, because like I said, because it's Puka Williams, will now be attached to his Les's back story. That is true. That is true. By the way, we, we got off kind of a, a dark start here to the podcast, and we actually have another sad story to get to in a second. So let me just back up a second. How was your holiday weekend? Uh, it was good. Went to a uh, went to a Dodger game on July fourth, and and uh, you know it's it was uh, it was fun to to be there. Got to see my colleague Joe Davis calls Dodger games. It was, it was a good experience. I know you went on vacation somewhere far, far away. We snuck we had, in a trip uh, to Hawaii over 4th of July weekend, which was probably more ambitious than we should have taken on. Let me tell you something. You know, people always talk about what's the best time zone to be in for sports. And I think you and I both believe Pacific time is ideal, especially on a college football Saturday. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to make an argument right now for Hawaiian time. Ready? So Hawaii is three hours earlier than California. Okay, well, this, this came as both an advantage and a disadvantage while I was there. Advantage, the, the crazy night that Kawhi Leonard signed with the Clippers and Paul George as well, you know, most of America was asleep when that happened, but I got to follow it in real time. I don't, were you still up for that? I don't think, I, I wasn't online at that point, no. I just happened to get back to the room and check my phone. And I forget what I saw first. You know how when you're looking on Twitter, you're seeing the most recent first. So it was like the reactions to the original Woj bomb. You know, it took a little bit to actually, because it didn't make any sense to go back and figure out what exactly uh, the original report was. But that was kind of funny to watch play out in real time. But then Sunday morning, to watch the U.S. women in the championship game, that required getting up at 5 in the morning, which was not ideal. However... Now, we were flying home that day, so I didn't get to take advantage of this, but I thought about it after the fact. If we weren't going to the airport that day, I would have had the best seats at the pool if I wanted to. I'd be the, the, watch the game and then go be the first one there. Uh, I'm guessing that it's, that it's not ideal to be on Hawaii time for most sporting events. It's going to be too, too early for a lot of stuff. Like, what time does, does college football kick off there? 6 a.m. For, the for the noon Eastern games. Probably not yeah. going to be catching any of game day, I would think. No, I wouldn't think so. But, you know, I think uh, you're used to getting up early to go to the beach. So, yeah, why not? No, I, I don't know how it would work all the time. That's how it worked this past weekend. And, by the way, how fun was the Women's World Cup Championship? It's, it's, I really enjoyed the one four years ago. That was probably the first one that I got really into. And uh, I did not get to see as much of this year's tournament, but I saw that game for sure. And, uh, God, it's fun, isn't it? Are, do you become more of a soccer fan, or is this just a you know every few years deal? Or no, every four years? right now it's still an every few years thing. I don't uh, I don't really watch much in the years in between the World Cup, men or women. Uh, though I'm more aware of it certainly. I mean, 
First of all, I, I, it's been amazing to watch the transformation. And I know we're going on a bit of a tangent here, but I think back to like 10 years ago, you wouldn't see much of any coverage of soccer, you know, at any point, World Cup or not. And, you know, we saw, I went on ESPN.com, I think Monday morning, and all of the headlines were about soccer from the day before, not just the women, but the men's uh, game that they lost to Mexico. You know, you see much more mainstream coverage of, Premier League and Champions League and all those things. And then most of all, it seems like everybody I follow on Twitter does watch it. They're all tweeting about it in real time. So when I was growing up, we, we would play soccer and everybody would say, oh, it's going to be the sport of the future. And then that would never really come to pass. But it does feel like it's finally happening. Well, it's definitely it's definitely increased quite a bit. I know I'm so much more involved with, with kids than other sports and you know obviously we can get on a big tangent if the men's team was actually any good if they were you know they don't have to be as dominant as the women's team but if they were actually you know made the world cup and then actually advanced in it i mean it would be even it would be that much bigger you know unfortunately we don't like i don't feel like there's a there's a megan rapino or an alex morgan that that a lot of you know young kids grow up watching on the men's side you know they watch if they do they watch messy they watch guys from other countries but anyway i don't really have a good way to bring this back well one thing i mean one thing that happened over that holiday weekend unfortunately very sad jared lorenzen uh star quarterback at kentucky went on and played in the nfl for a little bit obviously very unique very well known as the hefty lefty and 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 other great nicknames but sadly he passed away before he got to the age of 40 and you wrote about it that day for the athletic yeah, it's a story where he was one of these kind of, I would say, fits into the category of a folk hero, a rare talent, big, big personality who was just very connected to and to the fan base there, especially. You know, when I thought about this, because, you know, it's again, it's, it's somebody you'd heard about, somebody you'd watched play, but, you know, only 38 years old. And so I had reached out to Neil Brown, who is one of his former receivers and now is obviously the head coach at West Virginia. And he just raved about about Jared's athleticism. He's told me a story about how they all had went on spring break and he goes, we were going to go play, you know, we'd play basketball. And, you know, most of the guys who he's talking about were really good athletes and played high school basketball. And he said, Jared at like six, four, 300 pounds was dominating those games. You know, he was just that much better than everybody else at basketball. And he also said he had the best arm talent of anybody I'd ever played with or coached or been around. And remember, he was the guy before him was the first pick in the draft, Tim Couch. So that's a big mouthful. And then I talked to Hal Mummy, who just had these remarkable stories of of like Bunyan-esque kind of stories about about his talent and his, his just kind of his persona. And people, everybody, everybody just seemed to love Jared Lorenzen. And it's, it's, it's really sad, gone, gone way too soon, but he definitely has impacted a lot of people, not just people inside the state of Kentucky. He was actually, you know, a standout in high school in Northern Kentucky, right across from Cincinnati when I was in college, but still there. And so, you know, the legend was already building then. he was obviously, um, you know, big time high school recruit who was staying in the state and playing for Kentucky and you know and then he lived up to it more both in terms of his performance on the field and the you know persona that he took on so 
Uh, that was a very sad story to see. We just want to extend our condolences to his family and to obviously everybody who's a, a Kentucky fan or just a fan of the sport who, who enjoyed watching him. You were very busy while I was on vacation. You wrote that story. You also, it's Freaks Week, right? We're, you're, as we record this, you're two installments into the annual Freaks list, which I assume is the thing you're most recognized for. At least as a writing thing, yeah, because I've been doing it now for so long. It's it's not that not that far off twenty years now. So, Jeez, I didn't realize it went that far back. Yeah, I think it's like two thousand three or two thousand four. It might be two thousand three. When did it so, first become a five part series? You know, there had been wherever I've worked now, like our our. Uh, do you remember Teddy, who used to work with at Fox Sports? You remember that name? Yeah, yeah. I think his <laughs> name came up on the podcast only a couple weeks ago. Uh, so Teddy had some ideas how to kind of leverage the brand of that. And there were some other people we worked with who, who did that. And I think SI did that. And now the athletic, you know, it's kind of grown and become something about for the combine. There's a different version of it and, and whatnot. But I always forget how much of a bear it is the week of just because there's a lot of stuff that comes in where you're hearing from different coaches right before, oh, we're testing at the end of the summer, or, you know, right before camp and whatnot. And so it's just kind of no one's on the same timetable. And and uh, but the reaction to it's always pretty strong. And so um, that's what it is this week. And it's definitely keeping me busy this week. Well, the cool thing is it's become a badge of honor, like being named to, you know, the Bolitnikoff watch list or whatnot, being named to your freaks list makes news. I just want you to tell people about there are what, tens of thousands of FBS college football players? And it's not like this list is just the star players. I mean, this can be anybody on any team. How do you even go about you know, narrowing it down to a, a reasonable list of contenders? Well, there's nothing obviously scientific. It's a lot of anecdotal stuff. Either I hear from uh, a lot of strength coaches, hear from a lot of coaches, occasionally hear from some players, and... And SIDs. And so it's a lot of correspondence back with all those people. And you get your numbers. And the one thing I am pretty proud of with this is relatively early on, this might go for the first five or six years, you'd hear from some people, and this was even before the Twitter age, where where it's like, you know, I feel like the climate has gotten much snarkier, certainly in the last, you know, five, six years. But People would be like, yeah, these are just inflated numbers. Well, then a lot of these guys would show up at the NFL Combine, and they would do like the exact same numbers. You know, the first guy people were really skeptical of, I remember, was Margus Hunt from SMU, who is this Estonian shot putter. And he went to the Combine and did all the crazy stuff that was said in the story. You know, Saquon Barkley and Mike Gesicki from Penn State, same deal. Noah Fant from Iowa. You know, last year, same deal. You know, a lesser extent, John Kaminsky, who I had in the Kaminsky from uh, a Division two school in West Virginia, who I had in, in our thing last, uh, you know, last spring for the combine, did all the same stuff. And so it's not to say everybody's 100 percent like that. But you look back, even the, the crazy stuff where Sean Gary did at, at Michigan, it backed up. I think the examples are, are more times than not they do. So so that's. You know, I think that only increases the the kind of buzz that this thing gets. And you know, I'm I'm thankful for all the all the uh, support I've gotten from you know, especially a lot of coaches who who I rely on for this in, intel. Very good. Well, we encourage people to 
go on The Athletic and, and check it out this week. You can also read uh, another big story you did, of one of the most popular stories we've had, frankly, about a very, very unique assistant coach. Is there a way for you to describe, for anybody who hasn't read it yet, for you to describe Nebraska's quarterback coach without getting too, too, too into the scientific uh, jargon that he uses? Well, first of all, like Mario Verduzco is is a very unique character. Like people look at him, they see like he has the same round John Lemon. He does John not Lemon. look like a football coach at all. He, I can't imagine there are many other, if any other, you know, guys you'll see on the sideline on Saturday that look, have his look. No, the round John Lennon style frames. He sometimes chomps on an unlit cigar, kind of charcoal feathered back hair, smaller guy, just. You know, I think people would say, okay, he's kind of quirky, uh, you know, at the very least. And then you hear some of these stories, and I had met him, really kind of got to know him. We did, our crew did an Ohio State uh, Nebraska game last year. The day before the game in our uh, production meeting, Scott Frost told a really, you know, interesting story about how when he got promoted to be the OC at Oregon and quarterback coach, he did not want to screw up Marcus Mariota. So he had uh, Lou Mario, who had worked with him at Northern Iowa, in, basically said, hey, for two days, I want you to put me through your drills and do everything. Coach me like a quarterback. So he did, and Frost said it kind of blew his mind. But by the end of these two days, he goes, I threw it better than I ever had in my life. More velocity, more accurate, everything. He goes, I was 39 years old. And so when Scott Frost got to be head coach at UCF, he went and hired Mario Verduzco, who had who had done really well with a bunch of quarterbacks there, at, you know, at Northern Iowa, including a guy who holds FCS records. And so when I went to see him, you know, you walk into the office, and if there's ever like a, a setting you'd find a quote unquote guru in college football, this is it. You walk in, and there is opera music playing from his speakers, and just you know, he's walking around in his socks and just a. An interesting man. You look on the bookshelf and there's Nietzsche books and books from, you know, on religion and biomechanics and all this other stuff that you just would not expect to see from any other, you know, football coach. So he started talking and, and, you know, he's on the board diagramming and there's 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 Nietzsche quotes and Machiavelli quotes and all this other stuff. And it's pretty overwhelming, to be honest. I spent three hours in there with him and then went and heard him speak at the Nebraska, you know, high school coaches clinic later that day. And he wasn't as, he was a little different speaking to that group. There wasn't as many of those quotes, but when I got home, I had some other stories to work on. And this story was like kind of sitting, you know, in the back of my mind. And so over time I would go back to Mario and I, I must've talked to him for 12 hours on a bunch of separate occasions over the previous month to try to basically figure out what he was talking about because a lot of the stuff wasn't just over my head. Like, like you, I went to college, but I don't, I'm guessing you don't know that much about what Nietzsche is about. I'm guessing you don't know that anything about Richard A. Schmidt, who's one of the guys who, who Mario talks about the most. Who's kind no, of I mostly in college just learned about the inverted pyramid and, uh, and journalism 101. I, all that stuff would go over my head. Yeah. And it went over my head. And even when he talked about it, you know, I could Google it, but I just didn't get how it fit together. And so what that story is, is really how it matters and why it's unique. And what was really fascinating was the story went up, whatever, 6 a.m. 
specific time or so. I think I tweeted it out within a half hour. I got a DM from a coach I don't know who I've never met who's an offensive coordinator in, in FBS football who talked about just how much Mario had impacted him because he had seen him early on in his playing career and said he learned more about football from Mario than just about in that short time, just about anybody. And I started hearing from more and more coaches at all levels about about how fascinated they were by what Mario did. And one of the people I heard from is a strength coach who's worked in both the SEC as well as the uh, the NFL. And he raved about the story and he said this, and this is, I'm going to tell you, you know, part of this, this text. The sad reality is this is how coaching should be done. But coaches like him are typically shunned in football because of their quote, scientific approach. Other sports domains such as rugby, downhill skiing, and golf utilize physics and motor learning as bedrocks for coaching. Sadly, if Scott Frost didn't see this man's work up front, He'd probably still be at Northern Iowa, probably still be happy because he's too smart for most organizations. And he goes, you just did football a big favor by writing this article. So it's well, fascinating. That's got to be a good this. feeling. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting because I never really thought about when I wrote the story, that kind of impact or, or that part of it. But, you know, when you talk to people about, again, Mario will say, this isn't really me, my philosophy. This is the science. I'm just listening to the science. And so it's unique. And for people who haven't checked, you know, this is one story I was like, all right, you know, I'm sure Nebraska fans will be interested in this because it's a Nebraska football coach. But I think what I kind of had an idea once it was going up, this story is going to resonate a lot more beyond just uh, the Nebraska fan base. And that seems to be what happened from looking at the metrics of the story now. Yeah, they're very good, <laughs> to, to, to say the least. Uh, all right. Well, it's been a couple weeks. We have a lot of mailbags, a lot of emails from our listeners stored up. What do you say we get to the mailbag? That sounds like a good plan. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Uh, by the way, we I can't even remember what caused us to, to tell people. Do you remember what the, the impetus was of me saying, if you can guess our ages right in? I think it probably had something to do with something I had mentioned to you and I thought it was in your window of time. And you were like, well, I was 12 years old. I, I was more of a Bengals fan. I didn't follow college. Well, that was something also. we texted about offline. It was something we said, I think we were just, we were going down a deep rabbit hole. Like Maurice, oh, I know the one hit wonders and Maurice Claret and all that. Like, I wonder how old people think we are. Well, anyway, a lot of people attempted to guess. And so... At the end of this segment, we will we will get into that. But right now, let's start with John in Cincinnati. Wasn't that the name of an HBO show? Uh, John from that. Cincinnati was a. It was. It only lasted one season, but it was a one of those mysterious HBO shows. Aren't you Stu from Cincinnati, by the way? Yes, but I didn't get a TV show made after me. So there you go. Stu and Bruce, with most of the focus on head coaching hires, which don't typically result in a playoff appearance in year one. Which coordinator hires are most likely to have a positive impact on a contending team? Full transparency, I'm a Michigan fan. I couldn't be more excited about the Josh Gaddis hire. Great piece on The Athletic, by the way, Bruce. But he lists some other possibilities here. Mike Yurcich, the new is he the new OC or the new co-OC at Ohio State? I think he's the new co-OC. Kevin Wilson's Kevin still Wilson. there. And Ryan, Ryan Day is still going to be the play caller. Though. Steve Sarkeesian, the OC at Alabama. Graham Harrell at USC. 
Alex Grinch, the DC at Oklahoma, Kendall Bryles, OC at Florida State, and Greg Madison, co-DC at Ohio State. Does one of those names uh, stand? I guess if we would start, do any of those names do you believe in even more than Gaddis? And if so, which one? The one on there that intrigues me the most is Alex Grinch at Oklahoma. He did a phenomenal job at Washington State where he did not have that much to work with. And he was tough for other play callers to kind of get a read on. And Oklahoma's defense has been a real dud for a long time. And I think they're good enough in other areas where they can be a playoff team because they've been a playoff team the last few years. And we know Lincoln Riley really knows what he's doing. Those other names, you know, I think, again, when I – and this is my mistake if I read into this question, but it's like I took this as playoff contenders, right, of which teams they are. Uh, I don't think FSU is in the mix for that. Um, as far as Greg Madison, like I don't think the Ohio State guys necessarily fit in there because Ryan Day is still going to be probably the play caller, and I'm sure you, or your situation will help. I mean, the guy's got a crazy and deep memory and everything from what I've heard. Greg Madison has got Jeff Halfley, who I think a lot of people are going to find out is a, is a really great hire from everything I've heard. I don't think USC is a uh, – as a playoff contender. So basically on of this group, it comes down to Sark and I thought Alex Grinch. And so I thought Alex Grinch because he can make a, because he can make a much bigger impact just because Alabama's was really good on offense or great on offense last year. I'm not saying Sark will, will make them not great, but I just think that, you know, the bar is already really high. Whereas, you know, Grinch can fix something that was, that was an issue. So I have the uh, same, answer is you if, if we're only limiting it to playoff contenders that's tough because i mean these, a lot of these guys are taking over teams that are already you know already there pretty much how much of an impact can you have but with oklahoma the defense has been just so bad the last couple of years the fact that they even went as far as they did with that defense is incredible so you know, there's a lot of a lot of room to grow there he uh, actually Grinch got a little bit of uh, took a little bit of heat inadvertently recently when a recruit committed to them and said to said publicly that part of the recruiting pitch to this guy was that they're really bad on defense. They don't have any NFL players, so which comes off as him throwing his current players under the bus. Now that's coming from the recruit. You don't know what was actually said, obviously. Uh, also, I would imagine that's a lot of assistant coaches recruiting pitches to guys. You're trying to get them to come in and let them know that they'll have a chance to play right away. But anyway, I think, though, my thought the last week, there's got to be more talent there, even if they're not Alabama. I mean, it's Oklahoma. There's got to be more talent there than it would appear from watching the games. So uh, Grinch comes from a background where he worked on the other side of an air raid offense at Washington State and showed that you can have a decent defense. They're not mutually exclusive, so very interested to see what he does. Can I throw a couple other names out since we're talking playoff contenders mm-hmm. and just get your thoughts on them? Because I'm guessing you didn't think of the question this way, nor did I um, necessarily. So we talked about Josh Gaddis a little bit, and obviously I wrote about him. Andy Avalos is yes. now the defense coordinator at Oregon. Oregon, I think, has a chance to get in the playoff this year. They should be gr- terrific on the offensive line. Got a really talented quarterback in Justin Herbert. Jim Levitt is out. Andy Avalos is in. Do you like the move? Yeah, I mean, it's tough when you're replacing a guy who was already so well-respected and Levitt, but I am interested to see the impact that he can have. All right. And there's another one that I, I don't want to say this is under the radar because it's beyond that. 
But Jim Chaney was the offensive coordinator at Georgia, and Kirby Smart's a defensive guy. So now James Coley has moved up. What do you think of that one? Oh, I thought you were going to say, what do you think about Jim Chaney at Tennessee? Uh, well, Tennessee's not a playoff contender. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, TBD. I don't. I don't know enough about James Cole. I mean, I know him as a recruiter. I don't know as much about him, like to have any real hunch about what kind of play caller he was gonna. Be, he will be. Do you? I don't know. I mean, you know, he was at Miami for a little bit uh, in that role. He inherits a really good quarterback and obviously some terrific running backs, and I think a really good offensive line, but very unproven at receiver. You know, that's that one's to me a little more of a TBD on it. By the way, I. I thought the Jim Chaney hire for Tennessee is a terrific one. but And then the other one is on the other side of the ball at Alabama, you know, because Pete Golding takes over the official role as a defensive coordinator. So there's a few coordinators at these big schools. I don't. I guess you could put Joe Brady from LSU. He's the pass game coordinator and, and uh, big impact there on their staff from just being down there. So there's a handful of other names, but I'm going to still stick with Alex Grinch just because they were so underwhelming on defense, and I think he will he will get that remedied to a large degree. I'm just curious, what in your mind makes Jim Chaney a terrific uh, OC hire for Tennessee, who, by the way, made him the highest-paid offensive coordinator in the country? I think Jim Chaney has, is just a really smart offensive mind. He's really experienced. I think he can be able. He worked for Kirby Smart. And Kirby Smart is also from the Nick Saban tree. I'm not saying Kirby Smart's the, just because he, that he is the same temperament as Jeremy Pruitt, but I don't think Jim Jim Cheney is going to be phased by almost, by anything. And uh, so I think he's seen a little bit of everything. And now I, I would feel probably even better about it if he got to bring Sam Pittman. Those are the kind of frickin' frack of things, and they've worked together a lot. And Sam Pittman's as good as there is as an O-line guy. But I, I really like the Jim Chaney hire, considering how many different people were potentially on the mix for that job. I thought that was a really good hire by, uh, by Jeremy Pruitt. Okay. I'll keep an open mind about it. I wasn't At the time, I was a little puzzled why you know, they were moving heaven and earth to, to hire him, other than to say, like, hey, we stole him away from our division rival. But you made a pretty compelling case there. All right, Mark Weaver. Hi, Stu and Bruce. Most Power 5 leagues have a school that's consistently toward the bottom of the standings. If you are an up-and-coming coach who wanted to take a shot at the Power 5, rank the following schools in terms of the potential for success. Disregard the current coaches. Kansas, Rutgers, Indiana, Oregon State, and Vanderbilt. You can define success by saying that you would compete for but maybe not win the conference championship. So basically, if you were looking for your first Power 5 head coaching job, which of these seemingly unappealing jobs would actually make the most sense? I'm going to say Kansas, because a lot of these, you know, when you're looking at um, Indiana, they've just never really been able to do it. Certainly, it's been a long time for Rutgers. Oregon State has some success with Mike Riley. So are you saying this is the, are you doing this bottom to top or top to bottom? Uh, top to bottom. I'm saying which one would I take? Like, you know, basically the, um, like, I, I guess I'm saying is Kansas is as bad as Kansas is right now. It is mostly a self-inflicted bad hire problem. Oh, I'm definitely going to disagree with you on this. Go ahead. Keep going. I, I don't think that there's institutional, as many institutional hurdles as there are, certainly at, when you're Vanderbilt, the small private school in the SEC or... Oregon State out in the boonies of Corvallis and playing a distant competitor to the Ducks in terms of resources. 
know, Kansas football has not had as much success as Kansas basketball, but it was the, you know, in 2007, they were the number two team in the country at one point. Glenn Mason had some success there. They get, it can be done. I think the predicament they're in right now is a Charlie Weiss thing that is just taking years for them to dig out of. First of all, I'm going to take issue with the Boonies comment for, for Corvallis. It's not that far from, from Eugene. And uh, that's true. It's not that. I mean, it's a reasonable drive from Portland. And it's, and it's a cool little town. We did a game there. It's, got, it's got, definitely got some charm to it. And uh, let's be honest, a lot of colleges are not in the biggest of cities or biggest of markets. So I don't think that's a, a thing that's going to stick. I'm going to disagree with Kansas for a couple of reasons. Look, I think what Mark Mangino did there to win the way he did was pretty remarkable. Their structure right now is not ideal because you have three non-conference games. Uh, Vanderbilt, you get four, uh, which I think is certainly, you know, you, you have a chance for another cupcake game to get you a bump. I don't think, I, I would put Kansas at the bottom of this list, to be honest. You would rather have the Rutgers job than the Kansas job. I would have Indiana actually at the top of this list, but it's in such a it's in a rough division as is Rutgers. At least Rutgers is around a bunch of players, though. I mean, Rutgers recruiting base is is actually pretty good, so that part it's going for it. You know, if you were to tell me that Greg Schiano was going to be the next coach at Rutgers, I think he would have them in a bowl within three years. Well, he's the one guy that's been able to do it. That was a very unique fit that obviously had some success. But since they've been in the Big Ten, I mean, it's just been same with Indiana. You're just kind of beating your brain in because what's your ceiling when you're in the same division with Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State? You know, again, I'm a little biased on Indiana on this because I saw them last year against Ohio State at Ohio State. They're not bad. I mean, they were in a they've been in bowl games. They you know, I think Tom Allen does a really good job. They play hard. They're not bad. I mean, again... No, they're not horrible by any means. They're in contention. They've gotten to a point where they're now in contention to be 6-6 six and six, uh, most years. But let me play a guessing game with you here. When's the last time, do you think... What was the last season that Indiana won more than seven games? I would guess it's probably been 15 years. Try 26. The last time they won eight games in a season was 1993. And then the last time they did it before that was 1988. So your best case, like I don't doubt if you were an up-and-coming coach and you're a good coach, you could get them to bowl games, but but you're going to get them to very, very low-tier bowl games, and that's probably about it. That's probably the ceiling. Yeah, but you can, you, like, I don't think you're that far away. For, you're basically a fringe bowl team now. Kansas is like, is light years away from that. Sure. I mean, to me, they're the farthest. Like, look, Oregon State. I, you know, I don't know what, uh, what, you know, they're they're a bit of ways, and they're in a tough division. But they have one of the best players in the Pac-12 right now, and Jamar Jefferson. I think they can, they can, uh, you know, th- we've seen Jonathan Smith was a quarterback on a really good team they had that beat Notre Dame in a bowl game, and what was it, the Fiesta Bowl? I mean, they've been, you know, they've been good at times. So the job you would most want is Indiana, and the job you would least want is Kansas? The job I would least want is Kansas. I think, if I let's put it this way, if I was advising a, a, a young coach, and, and these are his options, I would say Kansas is the job to most, that would be the biggest uphill climb. 
Yeah, it's hard to separate. I guess I've been thinking mostly in terms of just, like he said, don't think about the current coach. So I guess I was saying don't think about the current situation. Like I wasn't thinking about it as literally you'd be taking over tomorrow. Just more like to me, the know, program itself Franklin, and the, James and the potential. James Franklin had Vandy as a top 25 team. That wasn't that long ago. You can sell. There's, I, there's not, it's not the same as being in, let's say, Atlanta. But there's a decent amount of talent around Nashville. You know, there's a population boom. There's a lot to, re- I think, a lot to recruit to. Those are the other schools, Kansas to me is like, I don't know how I would necessarily rank the, the other four, but Kansas to me is a clear five just because they are so far away. And maybe, you know, a lot of that is, is Charlie Weiss, but some of that isn't. I mean, it's just the way the Big 12 is structured now. When, when Mark Mangino in Kansas got it going a little bit, the Big 12 was structured differently than it is now. Can I just say I don't want any of them? <laughs> no, none of the above? I, you know, again, I, I think some of these other schools you can get to, you're not that far off from getting to seven or eight wins. I think you're, you're, you're not far off from getting to seven wins. And if you get seven wins at one of these places, you can get a bigger job out of there. Fair I enough. just don't think at Kansas you can do that. I disagree. I think you could be the next Mark Mangino. Stu, this question is from Quinn in Bowling Green, Ohio. Stu and Bruce, as it stands on July 4th at 10.30 p.m., Ohio State has locked down 13 commitments since May 31st for its 2021 and 2020 classes. Given how Ryan Day is continuing and even building on the success Ohio State already had in recruiting. How do you think his career will start off compared to similar coaching hires at other major programs? Most similar to Tom Herman at Texas, bad year followed by a New Year's six appearance. Kirby Smart at Georgia, eight and five, followed by an SEC title and national championship game appearance. Or Lincoln Riley, 24 and four, two Big Ten, Big 12 titles, two Heisman QBs, two playoff berths. Good question, Quinn. Good question. I mean, I think uh, I don't think he's necessarily apples to apples with any of those guys. I know that obviously Ohio State fans are hoping that he will be their Lincoln Riley, the guy who takes over for the hugely successful predecessor and and immediately is right in playoff contention. And maybe that will happen. Uh, I think one big difference, though, Lincoln Riley had the good fortune of uh, taking over. His first team was had Baker Mayfield going into his fourth college season. Ryan Day has Justin Fields, who has the buzz of being a future Baker Mayfield, but at this point has no experience to show for that. I'm not surprised, by the way, that he's off to the big start in recruiting. I think anytime, you know, it's my whatever, two decades doing this, like the thing you can most easily predict is that when a new coach takes over a blue blood program, his first full recruiting class will be massive. It's just you're already at a place that recruits well. There's all this excitement about the new coach. There's new energy. There's new buzz. They always do really well. Uh, but in terms of on the field this season, it's tough. I, I just think basically if, if he can turn Justin Field, not into Dwayne Haskins necessarily, but into an elite quarterback in his first full season, then I think they could win the Big Ten, play in the playoff, contend for national title. If he struggles, though, they don't have a plan B. Uh, their plan B transferred. So it's, it's a lot riding on the quarterback. I'm going to say, by the way, it's not just apples to apples. When throwing Tom Herman in there, I think it's like apples to sawdust. The other guys took over relatively similar situations. Tom Herman was taking over a team that had been really down for a while. So 
I and even Kirby would. Smart was not taking over a program that had reached the, you know, that in recent years was anywhere near the level Ohio State is right now. No, but it, but at least it was a different level than where Texas was. I mean, yeah. they were a top 15 team consistently. They weren't a top five team. But if, if his first year is, is eight, eight and five or seven and six, there's going to be a mass freakout because that's, yeah, there's no reason Ohio State should, should not, should be only winning eight or seven games. By the way, I think this is just a read from a couple of audibles we've had. I think you are more skeptical of Justin Fields' talent than you should be. I'm not skeptical of his talent. I, I know he's an extremely talented player. I just haven't seen him as a passer yet. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm more influenced by what I've seen in person of him, but and from the people I've talked to about him, like not all five star transfers are created equally. <laughs> I don't think like I feel like the tone you have is kind of how I feel more on Jacob Eason. It's not how I feel on this this Georgia transfer. So how what kind of season do you think he'll have? I think this I think Ohio State will be a top, top six team. I think Justin Fields will have a huge season. I don't statistically I don't think he'll do what Dwayne Haskins did because that was outrageous. You know, fifty touchdowns. But he's a, a much much better runner, and I think I think he's going to have a huge year. I think it would not shock me if he got invited to New York for the Heisman. Great. So now it's the second straight year on this podcast where I'm the Ohio State skeptic and will feel the wrath of Ohio State fans for not believing in them for completely different reasons than, than after Urban Meyer's suspension. But you may be right, my friend. You may be right. Uh, I watched their spring game and Justin Don't Fields... <laughs> this is one thing we got to keep an eye on. The words like, I watched their spring game, dot, 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 is probably... The one of the more dubious things that we can get sucked down a rabbit hole on. Yeah, you do, you think they have no relevance whatsoever? I think they have. I think they have little relevance. Yeah, I think they have little relevance. I don't put as much stock in it as you do. Look, I I love watching those spring games for as much for the for the chatter that you hear from the people who've been around those teams for two or three days, so you kind of hear more about it. But you know, I guess I take them a little more of a grain of salt. Maybe. Yeah, look, he made one ridiculous throw in that spring game, and then there were other times when he seemed really uncertain or uncomfortable, which is not that surprising. And I think maybe Trevor Lawrence and Jake Fromm, to some extent, have created this unrealistic, well, Jalen Hurts, too. Like, you know, these guys were true freshmen who came in and just seemed to be able to know what they were doing right from the beginning. Most quarterbacks take some time to learn the playbook and become more comfortable. So, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if, the limited experience he had at Georgia, he did play, he just didn't pass very often, will help him, or if he's basically basically starting from scratch, uh, new system, new team, being the, the, the starting quarterback for the first time. Just Jesse Temple, so this next question, Jesse Temple wrote a really good story, he's our Wisconsin writer, wrote a really good Jonathan Taylor feature, and he included a stat that is pretty staggering. Andrew Deere, hi guys, hypothetical that could happen this year. Would Jonathan Taylor be the favorite to win the Heisman if he reaches 2,235 yards rushing, 2,235 rushing, and passes Donnell Pumphrey as the all-time leading rusher in FBS history in only his true junior season? So he's entering his junior year. If he rushes for 2,235 yards, which is a lot, but he did run for 2,194 this past year, he would break the all-time 
rushing record in three years. What do you think? Make him the favorite to win the Heisman? Not necessarily. I think he is. There's other quarterbacks who are gonna who are gonna I think have higher ceilings on this. We've seen Wisconsin running backs put up huge numbers. Donnell Pumphrey didn't get close to a Heisman. I get I get it. He was not in a, a Power Five league, but you know there's gonna be a ton of buzz around Tua, and he's still got all those great receivers. There's going to be a lot of buzz around Trevor Lawrence, and his receivers are even better this year than they were last year. Quarterbacks are the are the focal point. I think they're. I think Jonathan Taylor would need those guys and whoever else, whether it's you know Justin Herbert or somebody else, to not shine a level like I think we've seen, especially like the last couple of years with these Oklahoma quarterbacks. I think I think it's it's going to be harder and harder. I think for a running back to win the Heisman with the quarterback numbers that we're seeing with these RPO offenses and all the stuff that's going on. If Jonathan Taylor breaks the all-time rushing record in three seasons and doesn't win the Heisman, then no running back, well, no, check that, no running back that plays for a team other than Alabama is ever going to win the Heisman again. Because that that would be insane. Uh, And I get it, yes, all the focus is on the quarterbacks now. But that would be, and, and also we should note the Heisman, you know, he will not have played his bowl game yet. So we'd have to do this in... 12, possibly 13 games. That's that's a tall order, but uh, I do think it will depend. Did Christian much. McCaffrey win the Heisman with that year he had? No, he didn't, which, you know, kind of was, you know, but Derrick Henry did. So uh, it wasn't, he wasn't that he lost out to a quarterback. It, it was the, the one exception to the rule lately has been to be the star running back for Alabama. I think it'll be, I mean, that's part of it, but it's more, you know, Wisconsin went eight and five last year. He never sniffed the Heisman, even though he ran for two thousand yards. If that's the case again, he's a really good player for a really mediocre team. He he might not even make it to New York. It's just, you know, people will he'll be out of sight, out of mind. But if it's Jonathan Taylor runs for twenty two hundred yards and Wisconsin plays in the Big Ten championship game with a shot to go in the playoff, you know, he would be on the very, very, very short list of guys that could win it. I think it would also help his cause if he, cut, you know, he cut down on the fumbles from I think eight to four. He can't, he needs to cut down more than that. I mean, the game we did, he had some fumble issues, and you know, I think there was. When you carry I, the ball every single play of every single game, you're going to fumble occasionally. You got to cut it down. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, like I, I think you need to have in this day and age, you need to have the almost the perfect set of circumstances to win a Heisman if you're going to be a running back. I just think it's a it's a much different – it's just a much different game right now, and it's perceived as a much different game. You know, like, I mean, everything is – everything is not through the lens of – like, who was the first great running back you remember? Herschel Walker. Okay. I mean, much – that's, you know, whatever, 35 years ago. It's just so, so much different now than what we've seen. If you look – do you know, so the year Derrick Henry won it, Christian McCaffrey was second. The year, the guy who was third was Deshaun Watson. And I believe, and if I'm not mistaken, maybe that was the year we kind of dinged him for the interceptions. No, that was, that was the next year. Right. But and that was kind of Deshaun Watson coming out of, coming out of, no, not no, a little bit of nowhere, right? Because he would. He'd been the guy, and then at the end of the year, he he obviously got it cranked up, but I just didn't feel like it was the same thing. And then there was Baker Mayfield's first, you know, big year at Oklahoma. There's no question it's a completely different different sport. I know you've been reading 
uh, Matt Brown has been doing, uh, Matt Brown and Michael Weinrib have been doing our, uh, every week they look back at a, a decade as part of the you know, 150th anniversary, and the 80s was last week, and his running backs that for that um, 80s team were Herschel Walker and Barry Sanders. Mm-hmm. Hard to argue with that, two of the greatest running backs of all time. However, that means that Bo Jackson did not make the list. Marcus Allen did not make the list. And then who was the quarterback? Doug Flutie. So when he first sent us a draft of this, I said, wait a minute. Doug Flutie was really the best quarterback in the, that played in the 80s? You know, you would, I was waiting for some guy who went on to a dominant NFL career. Nope. There, there's nobody that really fit that bill. So you know, Doug, Doug Flutie was a phenomenon in college, too. So, so it has, I just feel like it's reversed itself. When we get to the end of this decade, there will be all these, you know, we've talked about it a lot lately, all these great quarterbacks from this decade, and only one of them will be on the team. And then I don't know that people will be looking at all the running backs that got left out. You know, it'll be, um, there just haven't been that many true superstar running backs this decade. Stu and Bruce, what college football 30 for 30s would you most like to see made, particular ones that may be lesser known but interesting nonetheless? Some that come to mind, and he's got some interesting ones here. Tennessee's 2017 coaching hire debacle. Mike Leach, Craig James fiasco. The Vic brothers and their fall from grace and redemption. Thanks, John, from Virginia. I think those would all be fantastic. The Leach, Craig James one, they would have to interview you. They would have to interview... There's there's no way Craig James is going to sit down for that. So it would be you, Mike Leach. Who else could they get for that? They could get Lincoln Riley. They could get Dana Holgerson. They can get... They can get a lot of... I don't think they're going to get anybody from the Craig James camp, is what I'm saying. Probably not, although if they got his attorney, that that would be pretty entertaining because he was quite the character. I am selfishly fascinated by that one. Somewhere in my house, I have probably seven, literally 700 pages from my deposition where I got deposed by all their lawyers, the ESPN lawyers, the Craig James lawyers, the Spaith Communications lawyers, and then Leach's lawyers. Um, How long was your deposition? It was a whole fucking day, man. It sucked. <laughs> it sucked. And did I you, mean, were they questions that you, you were able to easily answer or were you, did you feel like you were like a suspect in a, for a crime? It's really strange because I'm not suing anybody. Nobody's suing me. And the idea that somebody would, you would hire a lawyer to go through that is just kind of a puzzling thing. But you're, you know, it's such an invasive, like for anybody who saw like the, that movie, The Social Network with Jesse Eisenberg, it definitely felt like parts of that. Now, obviously I wasn't, you know, like he's in the middle of it. I was, you know, in part of that, but like at one point, so they had, they being ESPN, I had an ESPN computer for a long time, an ESPN email account. So they pretty much whatever I had, you know, they, there was no need for discovery. But at one point, I, one of the attorneys I want to say it might have been the ESPN. I had a couple of attorneys said, what does, you know, such and such mean? And I like answered it. And I was like, that is such an odd question. Then I thought about it and I was like, oh my God, these guys are idiots. And I said, do you know who? And I mentioned this name. It was a guy named, his first name was Genesis. And I said, do you know who that is? And they were like, no. I said, do you know what he has to do with this? And they said, no. I said, Nothing. I, I, I write an email. And so this was like, I took notes cause I talked to some mountain West or probably whack coach at the time, you know, this email was found and it was some junior college safety out here. 
and it happened to be on like the same kind of like block of text they had. And it was just so weird. And, um, you know, it was, I don't know that story I think would make not mine. That story would make a fascinating 30 for 30 just because it was such a screwy case. And I'm sure Leach on camera talking about it in retrospect would be wildly entertaining. I would like to see a 30 for 30 on any number of conference realignment related things. But the one I guess I would most want to see is the the rise and, and eventual death of the Pac-16. Would you like to see one on the Chip Brown, Joe Shad duel off? Well, that would be a big part of it, I assume. They would, they would both have to sit down for interviews for that. Yeah, there's a lot of come to mind now that I'm thinking. Like I was like, um, you know, just kind of some of these stories that get, you know, like I, I'm ESPN did a really good 30 for 30 on like the day of the, I want to say it was like, I forgot what date in history it was in 1994 where a bunch of stuff happened. The day of Wanstead's team knocks West Virginia out of the, out of the, out of the title game and like five other crazy upsets happened that day. Right. Yeah. You remember that? Like well, that sure. I mean, it. you could do a You could do a 30 for 30 on the whole 2007 season. Yeah, I think that would be that would be an interesting one. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of them. I, I should have given this question, you know, much more thought on it. But all right, last but not least, everybody wants to know. So I would say we got probably in the neighborhood of 40 emails of people trying to guess our ages, and I I think you know I said don't Google it, and I think uh, people stuck to that because most of them were. I don't think there were many that were wildly off, but since I picked the questions, I got to include one of the only like ridiculous outliers, and that would be Kevin Sabir of Rockwell, Texas, who thinks you're 58. Kevin Sabir doesn't think I'm 58. If he does, he doesn't know what 58 looks like. By the way, Kevin Sabir, I feel like I have interacted with him on social media, well, on Twitter at some he point. Thinks you're, he thinks you're uh, 58, so, you know, sorry, I guess... Uh, Plastic surgery isn't isn't really helping the way you thought it would. Plastic surgery. <laughs> if I had plastic, look, I don't even dye my hair. Why would I plastic? Once we once we give the big reveal here, I just I mean, you nobody. I don't think anybody that met you in person would guess that was your age. So anyway, I'm gonna. So here are the finalists. Okay, we've got. Uh, I included what three of these? Kevin, or I'm sorry, Kenny Wittenberg, who. I don't know if this is a compliment or an insult, who says, uh, I listen to six different college football podcasts, not to be mean, but you guys are number five in the queue. Behind podcast, ain't played nobody, solid verbal, 24-7, and Athlon. At least you're ahead of shutdown fullcast. Well, thanks, Kenny, I guess. He guessed that you're 50 and I'm 44. Is he correct? Is he correct? I think he's correct. He is almost correct. How about... Alan from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who's guessing that I am 42 and Bruce is 50. Uh, Almost. I think he's correct. I don't Almost. think he's correct. Steve from Rocky River, Ohio, guesses that you are 51 and I'm 42. No, I think he's wrong. He's wrong. Nobody got it exactly right, so nobody's going to get the swag. But I am 43 and Bruce is 50. Okay. By the way, one of, do you remember we we went to we were in Columbus, Ohio, and oh, this story is not even worth telling. I was going to say where somebody thought Teddy, you were older than Teddy Greenstein. 
it was like Pete Thamel's cousin. We were out to uh, at like a I forgot what the name. It wasn't a Chuck. That was a long time ago. Uh, That that cousin was like a teenager then and is now full on adult. wasn't it Chuck only, What was the place where, like, it was like a... I think it was a, a Dave and Buster's, right? Dave and Buster's, thank you. Chuck E. That may, that's yeah. so long ago. That may have been before the famous uh, number one versus number two game in 06. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Because usually I stay closer to the to Ohio State, but I don't think... So are you, are you saying you've aged better than Teddy now from that time? Teddy's got more gray than I do, but the point is he's only four years older than me, so it's not like... I mean, maybe, I don't know, it doesn't seem like that would be a huge mix-up. If somebody said that I was older than you, I think I would take exception to that. I don't know. I, You're definitely in better shape, but I don't know. I don't think you look 50, but I, I hope you don't, that, that the consensus isn't that if you stand the two of us together, I look like the older one. No, I have, I have much more, also I'm out in the sun more, but I have way more lines in my face, for sure. Now, when you're on I, TV and they apply all that makeup and, and product then, you know, no doubt you look younger. You know, you know where I notice it? Um, God, why are we talking about this? Um, a couple of, whenever I did that, that, um, that oral history on the Texas Tech OU game, so I found, you know, the interview after the game, I'm interviewing Baker Mayfield on camera. I'm like, man, I interviewed, I, I, uh, I aged quite a bit in just two years. Kids. So. That's right. Those are the culprits. That is exactly right. And on that, I've no. aged more in the last three years than in any of the previous 40. There's no question. That's true. That's what happens. They, 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 they drag the life out of you. Sometimes. Just last night, the night before recording this, my daughter, my usually well, well-behaved darling daughter, had a temper tantrum that lasted a good 25, 30 minutes straight and involved a lot of high-pitched screaming right in my ear. So... I may have aged three years just last night. Yeah, well, now that she's learning the profanity, it's a down. It's all downhill. <laughs> yep, it's all downhill from here. All right, well, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Next week is conference media days. Hard to believe it. We'll have some, I don't know if we'll have big news, but we'll have some news and some some developments to talk about. We'll see you then. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octave. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic. If you haven't done so already, you can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here. Ah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. We'll talk about